behalf of uh, me and all the leadership here, we're uh, genuinely excited to see all of you today. Um, by God's divine providence, you have come here to worship the Savior this morning. And uh, we love you and we care for you as God's church. And uh, we want to extend a welcome to you. Before we do that, if you take your phone and you want to connect with us, take your phone and get your camera out and just scan this QR code up here. Just boop, just like that. You have to make the noise or it won't work. Um, and that'll come up with a scripture for today, our welcome, and then a few different things that'll help you connect with us. Um, so in the name of Jesus Christ, we would like to extend this Grace Life welcome to you, which is something we do every week to just make everyone aware of what we're here for and what the, what the church is for. It says, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a savior, and that's all of us, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness and to whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. Amen. Another thing we are doing here at Grace Life, kind of our new rhythm for the first Sunday um, of each month, to go along with communion, we have a segment called This Is My Story. And um, it's where we ask an individual to come up and just share their testimony or share how the Lord has worked in their life and how they've seen him move and work and um, just bring them out of the darkness and bring them out of death into the glorious light and the glorious life that the Lord gives us. And today we have Miss Bree Patterson that is going to be coming and sharing her testimony. So will you make her welcome, please? Thank you. Um, a few months ago, Tommy gave a message called The Fight for Joy on Psalm 16. And um, that was when the Lord began kind of stirring in me a testimony that I wanted to share. And I feel very honored today that I get to do that. Um, it was about fighting, fighting for joy. And um, many years ago when Cliff was in the military, he was given this pillow and on it was Psalm 144.1, and it said, Blessed is the Lord my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. And when he was first given that pillow, I thought, what an odd scripture verse to put on a pillow, like a decorative pillow. I get that it's the military, and, you know, they're fighting and all of that, but um, I had always thought about God as my comforter and my deliverer and my helper. Why was he going to teach me how to fight? Um, but that is the testimony that I'm here to give today, how the Lord has trained my hands for war and my fingers to fight. Um, <laughs> the battle that's mentioned in Ephesians 6, because it's not a battle against flesh and blood, although I did war against my own flesh. Um, I'm really sorry. It's a battle against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And um, many of these verses I'll reference throughout my testimony, and I put them here because that's how the Lord taught me to fight, was with his word. Um, and this is a battle that began um, probably in the year 2000. I was a freshman in high school, and our family was just coming out of a time of domestic violence. And to escape that, we were homeless for a season. And so that situation on top of teen angst and just figuring out as a teenager who even am I, um, I had a lot of 
anger and frustration and pain that I didn't know how to verbalize. And so I began using physical self-harming to release that tension and that pressure. And um, the enemy actually had deceived me into thinking that that was a valid way of getting through those emotions. And even though I had been saved at the age of eight, I didn't have a lot of biblical knowledge to know that the lies I was being told were lies and I was being deceived. And um, I actually began priding myself on deceiving everyone else because I loved being the girl with the big smile on her face in school. I, I wasn't like the angsty teenager in black. I was the girl that was, why are you not a cheerleader? You're so bubbly and so happy. Um, but I loved having this secret pain that I walked around with and that became my identity. And the music that I was exposing myself to in, in the privacy of my room, you know, when I would do those things, um, it was just like feeding that identity. <laughs> and um, I didn't realize that I was free in Christ. And that continued um, on into college when I went off and everything that my parents had told me, you know, don't do this and all that, I went off to college and I said, well, if the Lord loves me, we'll see how much he loves me when I do all these things. So I just went through the litany of things, and guess what? The Lord still loved me, but I continued in bondage and began to use self-harming at that point to punish myself, as if the death of Christ was not enough to atone for my sin. God would know I was really sorry if I was hurting myself, um, and still never realizing that the real pain and the real hurt that was happening was in my mind, because the Lord longed to renew me, renew my mind, and transform me by the renewing of my mind. But one of the first ways the Lord taught me to fight was by giving me a battle buddy. And in the army, that's a person that um, will go into the fight with you. And that was my husband, Cliff. He was really the first person that I opened up to about that. And thank the Lord he had had his own season of finding his identity in Christ. And he was secure in the truth of what the Lord had told him about who he was. And so he just continued to graciously feed me the truth of who God had said I was, not because of what I did or didn't do, but because of what Jesus had done for me. And so I began to see those habits changing um, as I had him to labor with me and to war with me. Um, but the renewal, the seeing my identity still hadn't come yet um, because I was still very much, well, I'm the girl with the low self-esteem. God, don't take my low self-esteem because it's the only way I know how to identify myself. I'm the broody girl and, you know, all that's an emotional and the hot mess. So um, that all kind of culminated in 2014 when Cliff's mom passed away and my best friend lost her battle with mental health. And I entered into a season of postpartum depression after having my son. And um, sorry. Um, and so even though I knew that the nearness of the Lord was my good, um, it was very hard to position myself to be close to the Lord through prayer and scripture reading. And some of those old habits that I had started to distance myself from, they came back. Um, and it, please, it was not that I was forgetting the gospel. It was that these voices of condemnation and these lies were so loud that I could not hear the voice of the Lord, that still small voice speaking to me. But all the while, these scriptures, I was continuing little by little to expose myself to the word. And then in 2017, um, 
everything kind of culminated, and after the birth of my fourth child, I began experiencing um, some very intense head pain. Um, I would go to the chiropractor or the to the doctors, and um, I felt like a hypochondriac because I would describe it to them. They would do a litany of tests. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. They actually use words like you're unremarkable. There's nothing of note about you physically to explain why you would be having these pains in your head, in your mind, in your brain. Um, and the medications they gave me made it worse. So there was another blow to my identity. I was now a hypochondriac. I was crazy. I was so in tune with my body that it was making me sick. And um, at that same time, I thought, well, I better just take matters into my own hands. So I started modifying my diet, started adhering to the identities of different diets. Um, I don't eat this food, so I must be this, or I only eat this kind of food, so I'm a that, and again, just it continued to confuse my identity. Um, but the Lord is faithful, and he sent his word, and it healed me. And scripture says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so around that same time that COVID was starting, it had been about two and a half years of me dealing with these headaches, this back and forth with my emotions, and um, all of that, Cliff and I became very intentional to get in the word and start reading about our identity in Christ, the implications of the gospel and the power we have, because God said, you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and his, his spirit is alive in me, and I was choosing to look at these and listen to these voices, but where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So there was freedom already in me. I just didn't know that all I had to do was stand in it. I didn't have to go fight the devil. I just had to stand in the victory that the Lord had already secured for me um, and that I wasn't the enemy. In Romans 8, um, that I, I didn't mention that before, but in Romans 8, it talks about how to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And that was another way the Lord was teaching me to fight, is to take my thoughts and look at them. Is this a carnal thought, or is this a thought led by the Lord? And making it submit. And so it was during that whole season that the healing came for the thoughts in my mind, and that I noticed that I was not finding that I was going towards self-harming as a means to feel better. And I can't tell you the day the headaches went away, the, the head pain went away, but I can tell you, and I would love to close by recounting the first day, that the Lord helped me stand and fight this battle. Again, the victory he already secured, he just helped me to stand in it. Um, it was a day I was very emotional, and my sweet husband was asking me, you know, what's, what is wrong? What, what's going on? And I said, I just don't know. I feel like I'm going crazy. And I ran into the bathroom, and I locked the door, and through my tears, um, I read this little post-it note, which was, I had post-it notes all over our house of scripture, because I'm so easily distracted, and it was like, bam, put your mind back on Christ. Um, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, 2 Corinthians 2.14. And I just began reciting many of those scriptures that are up there that the Lord had been giving me through these last 20 years, without me even realizing it, just telling the Lord, you know, I don't want to feel this way anymore. This is not who you told me that I am. I have a sound mind. Lord, would you deliver me? And if there is a lying spirit here, please go away in the name of Jesus. And immediately everything in my mind became very quiet. 
And the next thing I know, I was worshiping the Lord. I was just overflowing with worship for my God who had delivered me, who had taught me how to stand in that battle. And he was surrounding me with a song of deliverance, and he was quieting me with his love. And now I can hear Pastor Tommy preach on Romans 7 where it says, present yourself to God as one alive from the dead. And I am alive from the dead. And I don't need to be afraid today to give this testimony because my trust is in the Lord. And should the enemy try to deceive me again, he has taught me how to fight with my community, um, my husband and my D group and the, the family that the Lord has given me um, in Grace Life. <laughs> and... Um, and he has taught me to fight with his word. And I'm just so thankful. And uh, I don't mean to say, as Paul says, that I have obtained perfection or that I have obtained all these things. But I'm just here to give a testimony that if, if that's been something that you've been going through, um, that there is hope and there is deliverance. And he will send his word and he will hear you, um, heal you. Um, so thank you for letting me share about how the Lord has helped me to, has trained me to fight and um, help me to stand in victory. Wrong about you. Uh, I don't think of Bree and think unremarkable. Am I the only one? I don't know. Cliff, are you? <laughs> Thank you for that testimony. It's just interesting how the Holy Spirit always uh, correlates testimonies, songs, prayers, conversations with, this, with the sermon. Uh, today I'm taking just a, a short break from Romans 7 for lots of reasons. Uh, one reason is next week is Mother's Day. We're doing some special, a special message on that day and... Uh, just some other things going on, so I thought, you know what, I want to I wanna talk about communion. Today's first Sunday, and uh, we have this strange, maybe strange to, to newcomers, strange custom uh, that we practice as Christians. The Bible says, as often as you do this, and it talks about the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we celebrate this, this feast, uh, the first Sunday of every month? Where does it come from? What does it signify? What does it mean? Uh, so I thought we would go back to the Old Testament today and talk about that for a little bit. So uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. You can turn there. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look at the Passover. And the title of this message today is Our Story in Exodus. Did you find it yet? Exodus chapter 12. It's the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And you can just hold your place there. We'll read a, a few verses from that passage. But the first thing I want to do is just pause and pray. So let's do that. Lord, thank you so much. Just the gripping testimony we've already heard. And the profound truth we've sang together in our worship songs. I trust you have brought the people today. And there are people tuning in from home right now. They needed to hear that testimony. They needed to sing these songs. They need to hear this message, Lord. I need to hear it. I needed that testimony. I needed to sing those songs and, and rehearse these truths again and again. And we all need this ordinance together, what it signifies, what it reminds us of. We are so prone uh, to forget good news, Lord, or to bury it under layers and layers 
of just busyness and exhaustion and fatigue and maybe even bondage and old rhythms and habits that resurface, Lord, and, and they just eclipse your goodness. They eclipse your power and your beauty and your face, and we need to, to fight. We, we need a beautiful resistance to fight to, to see you again, to behold the risen Lord and all of your power and your beauty and your strength so that we can become what we are. And so I pray this message would resonate, Lord, and, and that you would give me liberty uh, to, to just speak forth and declare these promises from this story in the Old Testament and help us to see wonderful things in your truth. We know they're there, and we know you don't want them to stay hidden, Lord. You're not playing hide-and-seek with us. We just need your Holy Spirit to come and, and reveal these truths to us in powerful, illuminating ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to start in verse 21, Exodus chapter 12, verse 21, and we'll go through to verse 27. There we go. I was going to read the whole chapter, but the, really these few passages here capture the, the essence of the story, what I want to focus on. Exodus 12, 21 through 27, here we go. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the tor two, excuse me, two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Amen. Well, Many gripping themes fill the pages of Scripture, and we could rehearse a lot of those. But, of course, the biggest theme is redemption. That is the plot line and storyline of the Bible. Salvation, deliverance, rescue. That's the entire point of the Bible. It's the plot. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, enters his broken, sinful, rebellious, and ruined creation to rescue and restore it. That's redemption. And one of the most riveting places that you see this, before Jesus actually came onto the scene, one of the most riveting places that God demonstrates this is in the Old Testament book of Exodus. And that's where God delivers his people from Egypt. It's an epic story. And you have to understand something about Israel's deliverance from Egypt. It meant everything to the Jews. That was their story. That was their identity. If you were to go up to any Israelite and say, hey, does Yahweh love you? And they would say, of course he does. And you'd follow up and you'd say, well, how do you know that he loves you? They would say, because he, he rescued us. He rescued us from our captors. 
He rescued us from the, the world empire of Egypt, the greatest known world superpower at that time and, and, and age in the ancient Near East. They would say, we were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage, into the promised land. Every Israelite knew that story well. It was buried in their memory. In fact, that consumed their whole calendar. They had feasts. They had ceremonies. That was everything to them. They had liturgy about it. God never, ever, ever wanted them to forget what he had done for them. And so they had these ordinances. And look, look, we have an ordinance too that corresponds to that. I want to draw some of those parallels today. The Israelites would rehearse that often. It was everywhere in their literature. And remembering that story was so important to them, as Bree said, because that was their identity. They didn't belong to Egypt anymore. They were not in bondage anymore. They weren't in captivity anymore. They belonged to a different master, to a different Lord, to a different God who had done all the work on their behalf. They didn't do anything to deliver themselves. He did it all. They stayed inside and killed a lamb and had a feast. And God put on his hard hat and went to work for them. That's the story of the Bible. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. We did nothing. We did all the sinning. He did all the saving. That's what make. That's what make. <sighs> that's what makes Christianity so unique. If you want to look at Christianity as a religion that's utterly distinct from all the other religions because of grace, Jesus did it all. We did nothing. So this is our story in Exodus. And here's what I mean by that. The gospel's good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. It's a declaration of something incredible and life-changing that God did for us through Christ. So I'm just going to have three points today, and I'll try to get through them as quickly as I can. Um, Three points. This is our story in Exodus, how you can find yourself in the Old Testament and see God's work of rescue on your behalf. Point number one, we see something about the captivity of humanity. Point number two, the faithfulness of God. And point number three, the scandal of grace. So point number one, the captivity of humanity. If it, and by the way, this, this whole story spans 15 chapters. Well, I know, 15 chapters. We're not going to go through all those chapters. I would not do that to you, okay? This could be a year series of sermons. So I'm just, understand this, this is a shorter message. And uh, I'm just going to presume it's dangerous for, for a pastor to do this. But I'm assuming and presuming that you kind of know the storyline, okay? The children of Israel were in Egypt. They were in Egypt for 400 years. They were in bondage. They were in captivity. They were Pharaoh's labor force. They were building his cities. um, And they were crying out to God to deliver them. And the Exodus is the story of after 400 years, God finally made good on his promise. He finally made good on his covenant. And he came and he rescued them. So that's point one. They were in captivity. And when the story of Exodus opens up, at first it opens up good. The people of Israel, they've got it good, man. They're in a good land. Pharaoh has been very good and kind to them because of Joseph, if you remember that from Genesis. They're a king that is sympathetic to the Egyptian people. Uh, he's in power. But as the case, so often is the case, a new king arose who did not remember Joseph. And I, I just got I want to insert this. This is for free. Beware of trusting in a king that's in your favor for now, or a president, or a political leader. Uh, That's great. God sometimes has mercy on us, doesn't he? And we have a person in office that we feel like, man, they're one of us. They're a Christian, or they're sympathetic toward our Christian worldview, and that's awesome. And now we can just rest. We can relax. Our prayers are answered. God has heard, heard us, and now we can just coast. 
But I want to warn you, if you read the Bible, another king, another president, another senator, another congressman is going to arise who did not know Jesus and who did not care about his people. In fact, uh, maybe he's got a different master. Maybe he's got a different agenda, which is so often the case. So another king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph and didn't give squat about the people of Israel. In fact, the Bible opens up in Exodus saying that the children of Israel were multiplying. There's all this fruitful, teeming language, the same language used in Genesis to describe animals populating the planet and and being fruitful and multiplying. The the children of Israel were everywhere, man. They're multiplying like flies. Nobody can stop them. They're doing exactly what God told them to do. They're being fruitful. They're, They're producing offspring. And Pharaoh is starting to get really jaded about it. He's starting to get concerned. He's starting to grow fearful of them. So what does he do? If you can't control people, what do you do? You start eliminating them. He wants them to, uh, to go away. He wants to oppress them. So he makes their lives miserable. He sets taskmasters over them. He makes them start to build his cities. He starts to oppress them. It's very cruel, very barbaric. These taskmasters give them quotas. They, uh, they give them straw to make bricks with and to build cities. And it's, life is miserable for them. It's actually miserable for them. Pharaoh, he's torturing them. He hates them. They're like... To Pharaoh, they're like fire ants. Anybody ever had a fire ant mound in your backyard? No matter what you do, man, they multiply. You can't get rid of them. You even buy the, the strong granulated poison from Lowe's, and you pour it on there, and then a week later, they're somewhere else. One of your kids is outside, and they scream. You're like, what in the world, man? They just relocated. That's, that's how Pharaoh viewed the children of Israel. They're a disturbance. They're a nuisance. He wants them to go away. So they dealt shrewdly with them. They oppressed them. They began to crush them. Life is miserable. And this is what happens. I say this is our story in Exodus. When you are in captivity, you know you lose everything. You lose your identity. You lose your freedom. You lose your joy. You lose your purpose. Sometimes you lose your sanity when you're in captivity, right? And the children of Israel, they are in bondage. They need rescue. It's funny to me, man. This text was written thousands of years ago. But it's almost as if when you read this story, it could have been written yesterday because this idea of captivity and bondage, if we're paying attention, this resonates with every single person in this room. Either this is your story, God has rescued you from it, or God is rescuing you from it, or he has rescued you from it, but you're falling back into those patterns of living, that way, that lifestyle of living. You're finding yourself right back where God had delivered you from. And you're thinking, what happened, man? What happened? I thought God delivered me from this. I'm right back in this thing. And life is miserable. You feel like you're in bondage. That your freedom and your identity has been stolen right back from you. It's almost as if uh, this was written yesterday. And listen, I've been in ministry long enough now. I can say that now, man. I'm 47. I've been in ministry long enough to see a few things about this idea, this really this reality about captivity. And, and here they are, and I hope they don't make you mad. This is my observations, okay? And it seems to comport with Scripture. Number one, people are not always honest about the things that are holding them captive. They're not, man. It's a, that's, a, that's a big secret. They're fine. You're fine. I'm fine. We're all fine. We talked about this finitis we have. I think you even heard it in Bree's testimony, the bubbly girl at school who's got secrets, Right? So people are not always honest about it. And that's terrible. And that's exactly where Satan wants you to stay. Number two, sometimes talking about captivity makes religious people angry. Because <laughs> you're stepping on their idols. They're, you're getting in their kitchen a little bit. You're getting all up in their business. 
Number three, this resonates with human beings who are open to it. When we talk about this and people are broken and they're humble and they're open and they're receptive, you can just see it resonate with them. What? You mean there's freedom for this? I don't have to live like this? Absolutely. There's freedom from this. And here's the last thing is that Christians can fall back into these patterns of living. And so I just want to say this to you. Has, has something got its bony fingers around your neck again, strangling you, dragging you back to a life that you know that God has rescued you from and wants, to, wants you to remain in freedom from? What is it? Is it the opinion and the judgment of others? I got a testimony I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, not today, but another time about that. How radically insecure I was to the opinion and the judgment of other people. And God has rescued me from that, and he is rescuing me from that. Because if I'm not careful, if I'm not fighting, I fall right back into that. Man, all it takes is a text or an email or a phone call where somebody's vague <laughs> with me. That sensitive. Like, hey, man, we got to talk. Used to, that would hold me bonded. That would hold me captive. Maybe, maybe you can identify with that. I don't know. I have a certain personality type where that kind of thing holds me hostage. And I have to say, you know what, man? This person, maybe they, maybe they need me. Maybe they need, maybe they need encouragement from me, or maybe they have, maybe they have a concern about me. And this person's my friend, and they're going to share this concern, and I'm going to be a better Christian because of it. I have to, I have to use Scripture, man. I have to fight these things. It doesn't, it, it can't hold me captive anymore. When I'm fighting, when I'm thinking clearly, maybe it's technology and social media. It's got its cold, clammy fingers around your neck. <laughs> We say, oh, no, I can't be me, really. Well, check your, check your screen time sometime. How much time do you spend on that thing? How much time do you spend checking email over and over and over and over and over? It was funny. Somebody, some, my sister actually sent me a, uh, a meme the other day, and it talked about how Americans, <laughs> Americans are like, hey, I'm leaving work. I'm, I'm having kidney replacement surgery, but I'll be available on text and <laughs> it's like we're, we're in bondage like productivity maybe it's like we always have to be available your career money materialism beauty health your appearance coping mechanisms self-medicating gaming entertainment alcohol lust greed pornography control comfort Maybe I'm getting up in, in some people's business this morning. I've learned, man, church people, they like to hear about that from a distance. But when it's, when it's applied to them, they get antsy, get really sensitive to that. Church people do not like talking about being enslaved, even though it's everywhere in the Bible. We have a hard time with that. We love this illusion of freedom. We love the illusion of freedom. We hide our idols like Rachel did under her saddle in Genesis, right? We don't talk about captivity. But Jesus did. Jesus said, I came to set the captives free. So Jesus said, I'm here for you if you will confess your captivity. And a lot of people didn't. And I want to be super honest with you. The people that had the hardest time with Jesus' message about liberation from captivity were people in the synagogue. They were religious people. They didn't want to hear about that. In fact, Jesus came to his hometown in Nazareth. This is, this is a mind-blowing story in Luke chapter 4. First sermon Jesus ever preached to his hometown. He went to the synagogue. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. He read it, and he started preaching a wonderful, powerful, beautiful expository message on it. And he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
Great sermon, man. Liberty, no more captivity, no more oppression. Good news, right? Not if you're in denial, it's not. Not if you're sensitive about it, it's not. Not if you think you're free. And you know what they did to Jesus after that sermon? They took him, it says, to the brow of the city, <laughs> to the brow of the city on which, uh, on which their town was built, and they tried to throw him off the cliff. That's in Luke. That's a true story, folks. Check it out. Luke chapter 4, preached his first sermon. The people in the synagogue didn't want to hear it. In fact, it says this. When they heard this, they were filled with wrath. How about that, man? Religious people hearing a message about the bondage and captivity and denial they're in, and they're filled with wrath. They rose from their seats. They drug Jesus out to the top of a cliff and tried to throw him off. But it wasn't his time yet. He was going to die by another means. There was another time in John 8 that Jesus told the Pharisees, if you embrace the truth, it would set you free. Do you remember what they said to that? Hallelujah, the Messiah's here. It's not what they said. They said, how can you say set us free? We are children of Abraham, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. Man, talking about it's like, hey, you guys read Exodus lately? <laughs> Egypt, 400 years? I don't know. Check your history, guys. We've never been in bondage to anybody. And then he said this. He said, if you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. You're not going to have an upper hand on Jesus. He's going to have the last word. And you know what they tried to do when he said that? They said, guys, he got us. Let's confess our sin. They tried to stone him. Religious people tried to throw him off a cliff. Religious people tried to stone him. You've got to be careful talking about captivity and bondage in church, man. It'll get you stoned. I mean, the, you know the kind of stoning I'm talking about, right? It'll get you stoned. It'll get you thrown off a cliff. So I pray nobody in here is that sensitive to that idol of captivity. Because we're all, we can all fall into patterns of brokenness and denial in our life and be right back in Egypt. We, we have Stockholm Syndrome, right? We become almost sympathetic to the people that held us captive. That's why people have a hard time getting out of abusive, abusive relationships. I've read story after story of this. I mean, idols will mess you up, man. They will kill you and deceive you and make you thank them for the good time you're showing them. That's what happened when the children of Israel were finally free and they were in the wilderness and they faced their first hardship. What did they say? Oh, that we were back in Israel where we had leeks and onions and melons and garlic and they did. They said, is there not enough graves in, the, in, the, in, in Egypt that you had to take us out here? They were basically saying Pharaoh is good to us. <laughs> Don't we do that sometimes? Man, living the Christian life is hard. I had it easy before. Oh, did you? Did you really have it easy? You were blind, you were captive, you were in bondage, you were miserable. <laughs> you had a stolen identity, you weren't free, you were believing lies. That's what this reminds us of. What did it cost God to set us free? It cost him everything. We face the temptation all the time to return to the life that held us captive and go back to the sins that enslaved us. And some of you may be facing that battle today. You're feeling weak. You're feeling frail. You're feeling like a captive. This reminder is for you today. That's what communion is for. It's like, hey, you can be free. It costs the Son of God everything. You need to remember this. You need to handle this stale cracker or wafer, whatever it is we use. You need to drink this cheap grape juice. Okay? You need to remember. When your, all of your senses need to be involved in this. That's point one. I could say a lot more about this, but... Point, point number two is the faithfulness of God. First thing we see is something about our captivity. The second thing we see 
is something about the faithfulness of God. And I love, I love how Exodus opens up. Let me see if I can find it here. This is how Exodus opens up. In chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During those many days, those years and years and years, where the old king was gone and the new king was in town, and, and especially the 40 years that you know, Moses tried to deliver the children of Israel by killing an Egyptian. <laughs> and then he had to run. He was a fugitive. He heard Pharaoh was angry, and so he ran to the land of the priest of Midian, and he got married and had two sons. Well, during those 40 years, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Don't you love all those, all those Hebrew verbs there express like powerful, active interest in what's going on with his people? God saw everything. He heard every groan. He felt every lash of the whip. He knew. He knew. And listen, you know this if you've been waiting on something from, from, from God. God's timing is impeccable. He always comes. He never comes early. <laughs> you know, like the psalmist says, I wait I wait for the Lord like I wait for the, for, the, for the sun to break, for the dawn of day. You know, the thing about the dawn is it always comes. It never comes early. <laughs> and God came at his time. And here's another way that that's expressed. In the burning bush, it's, it's almost as if God wanted us to know this. He said it twice in two chapters. The Lord said to Moses in the burning bush, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Just stop right there before we read the rest of that. We lie to ourselves sometimes or we believe the lie. God doesn't know. God doesn't see. God doesn't understand. Even if he did, there's nothing he could do about it. You ever believe that? We say that. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. And even if there was somebody that knew and cared, there's nothing they could do about it. Read Exodus. It'll blow those lies out of the water. God sees. He knows. He cares. He fills it of his people. Just like whenever Paul was persecuting the church, and Jesus spoke to him, and he fell to the ground. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? That's not what he said. What did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> you mess with the body of Christ, you mess with Christ. You mess with the head. And God is saying, I see, I know, I feel, and it's time to make good on my covenant. Let me read the rest of that. And I have come down to deliver. Is that not the gospel in the Old Testament? Here's God, high, majestic, sovereign, powerful, lofty, powerful. And he says, I'm going to come down there. I'm coming down there. <laughs> Sounds like something your mom would say upstairs. Won't you make me come down there? That's what Egypt did. God said, I'm coming down. Now you've had it. Now you've had it, Egypt. You've messed with my offspring. You've messed with my people. Now you're done. <laughs> That's what he's saying. You're done. God's faithfulness is demonstrated here. You guys remember the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo? It's one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite books. I love the movie when Edmond Dante realizes that he's probably never going to get out of, of that prison on that island, the Chateau d'If. He tells a priest, he befriends a priest next door to him, uh, Richard Harris. I love, a great actor. And he's been there forever. And he tells the priest in despair, he says, there are 72,519 stones in the walls of my prison cell. I've counted them many times. And the priest replies, but have you named them yet? And then Dante's overcome with emotion, and he says, 
God has forgotten me. I don't believe in him anymore. To which the priest, Richard Harris's actor, he says, it doesn't matter. He believes in you. Now, look, that's not some kind of, I'm not making that into self-help. He's not saying God believes in you, that you can make it, you can get out. No, he's saying God, God knows about you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He knows you're here. He's going to deliver you. And that's kind of how the story goes. In spite of being dominated, think about this, guys. It's so easy to forget this. In spite of being dominated by a hostile foreign enemy who had taken their freedom, stolen their identity, and made them dependent on their captors, Israel had only one thing going for them. They belonged to God. <laughs> it's like, he, he's, you're messing with me. I'm telling you, man, you don't know my father. <laughs> you don't know who my father is. You don't want to provoke him, I'm telling you. They had one thing going for them, that they belonged to God. Israel belonged to God, and he belonged to them. He had pledged himself to them. And so you know the rest of that story. So one of the things that we see about God's faithfulness here is his supremacy. I'm passing over some things is the reason I pause there. Uh, I want to talk about supremacy for a minute. And because we talked about captivity, we were held captive, we were in bondage, our identity was stolen, our freedom was stolen by another hostile force, right? Whatever that it was for you or is for you. And now God's going to come, he's going to demonstrate his faithfulness and he's going to rescue you. And in that rescue, you're going to see his supremacy. And God has not just shown you his supremacy so that you can be in awe of him. That's one of the reasons he's shown you his supremacy so you can, you can, uh, you can change masters. <laughs> this is the Jesus is Lord story from the Old Testament. Jesus isn't just going to free you and give you a new identity so you can go on about your life and live however you choose. He wants to be your master. And he's a much better master than whatever it is that held you captive before. So, Pharaoh was the king of the world's greatest superpower. Egypt was untouchable. If you read anything about history during this time when this was written, Egypt was, in, was untouchable. If you messed with Egypt, you would find yourself under a pyramid, buried somewhere, right? They, were, they had supremacy in everything at that time. Religion, architect, military might, culture. Pharaoh was seen as a, as a god in human form on the earth. He was at the center of their, of their worship. He was the protector of Egypt. And everything sacred to them, the animals, the crops, the Nile River, everything. Pharaoh was, was like the protector of all of that. So now, all of a sudden, you know the story. Moses goes away for 40 years. He meets God in the burning bush. God sends Moses back. He says, I'm ready to rescue my people. So here comes Moses. This few runaway fugitive with a stick he claims can turn into a cobra. He smells like, probably smells like sheep dung. And he comes back, this old man... 80 years old, shaking a stick, a Pharaoh he's never met, and he says, hey, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go or else. It's almost comical, isn't it? Pharaoh says, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who's this Christ? Somebody come and get this lunatic. And Moses says, you better let my people go or you're going to be sorry. And God is setting us up for us to get a front row seat and say, ooh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good, isn't it? So, God decimated Egypt. He's shown us supremacy. God will suffer no rivals. It pains, it pains God to see his people in the arms of another lover. You know the Bible says that in James? He yearns jealously for his people. Jesus cannot tolerate us in the arms of an idol. He has a righteous jealousy over us. We belong to him. He made a covenant with us, and he's not, 
ever going to break that covenant, even though we do multiple times and in multiple ways. God comes and he shows his supremacy. He decimates Egypt. He destroys their land. If you follow the ten plagues, which, by the, by the way, the ten there is for completion, he completely destroys and decimates and levels Egypt from the beginning to the end. It almost sounds like when you're reading Exodus, some of the Hebrew terms and phrases, it sounds like an undoing of Genesis 1 through 2 of creation. God is uncreating Egypt because of what they did to his people. He's like dismantling their religion systematically. Every god and goddess that has to, is supposed to have control over the Nile, over flies, over crops, over locusts, God is like totally destroying all of them and showing I'm supreme over this god, over this goddess, over this lord of Egypt. He's showing he is at the top. This unknown Hebrew deity just comes out of nowhere and completely decimates them and convinces Egypt to let his people go. That's why, you know, we're only given two chapters on creation. Think of how powerful creation is. God spoke everything into existence when there was, in fact, nothing in existence. Ex nihilo is the word. He, he spoke uh, something from nothing, right? We're only given two chapters, but the Exodus spans 15 chapters. Why is that? What's God trying to tell us? He is demonstrating his power. You can only demonstrate power when there's an opponent, right? If the heavyweight champion of the world walked into a boxing ring and said, I'm going to show you how powerful I am, and he starts shadow boxing, what would you say? Come on, man. Get a competitor in there. <laughs> then, then you can really show, show your stuff. And that's what God does. He says, I'm going to go up against the greatest superpower the world has ever known, and with my pinky, I'm going to decimate them. That's what God did. That's the God to whom we belong, friends. He still holds that power. And that's way in our favor. <laughs> I think sometimes we feel we're in a minority and we're, we're in this stained glass prison and oh my goodness, we're so small and we should, we should be afraid and, and the world is getting more and more unsympathetic and we don't even live. We live in a post-Christian, post-modern. We need this story, don't we? We need to remember this. God has supremacy. Christ has supremacy. We don't need to cower in fear. We don't need to be afraid of the future, who's in office, what that's going to mean for us. He's already shown he has supremacy. We need gospel reminders that Jesus Christ is the one true supreme God, and he can grant freedom, and he can grant forgiveness. And that's the final point I want to make here. If the Lord can conquer the gods of Egypt, he can conquer death and the grave. He can shatter our idols. He can deliver us and free us. Amen? The third point is the scandal of grace, and this is for the reminder of what we're doing today. The Exodus and the Passover shows us something about our captivity. It shows us something about God's faithfulness and his supremacy. And finally, it shows us something about the scandal of grace. If Israel was delivered from Egypt, why would God have them to continually remind themselves of that event? Why have a yearly feast? Why travel all the way up to Jerusalem every single year? Here's why. Because it wasn't only Egypt that they were delivered from. It wasn't just Pharaoh they were delivered from. It was their unbelief. It was their sins. Their sins were the greatest enemy. That's the story all the way through the Bible. It wasn't just Egypt they were delivered from. It was their sins. Right? The same thing you could trade. It wasn't just the, the Philistines they were delivered from. It was their own unbelieving, sinful, rebellious, wayward heart. Israel, I'll say it this way. Israel needed a deeper deliverance. Than from Egypt. And you and I do too. 
I think so, if somebody injected a truth serum into us and said, like, man, just tell me straight, what's the problem? Because we've always got an answer. It's this or it's that. It's my job. It's my boss. It's my spouse. It's my kids. It's my parents. We always have something out there. And the truth serum would say the real problem is the way I respond to those things. It's my unbelief. It's my bitterness. It's my resentment. God wants to get us right first. Sure, there's things to be reckoned with out there. There is a hostile boss. There is a, maybe an unbelieving spouse or there's abuse or whatever it is. But first, God wants to do the work here in our hearts. That's why this whole Passover feast thing, and if you think about it, it's amazing. God passing over the homes that had blood on the doorpost. That is incredible. That's telling us it had absolutely nothing to do. The rescue, if you don't take anything else away from this sermon, take this. God's rescue of his people had absolutely nothing to do with the character of the people on the inside of the house where the blood was. Had nothing to do. It wasn't like, oh, they're so pure. They're so holy. They're so obedient. I'm just going to pass over their house. They made it. And when I pass over, give them a thumbs up. Good job, guys. You made it. No, it's, it's, it's everything to do with the character of the one who rescued them. That's what that blood signified. You would find one thing in every single house in Egypt that night, either a dead son. Remember that the last plague was the death of the firstborn. You would find either a dead lamb or a dead son. Those Israelite homes that had blood on the doorpost and the lintel, they were just as proud, just as unbelieving, just as rebellious as the Israelites in other houses. What was the difference? Faith. Faith was the difference. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we celebrate every time we have communion. And I know maybe you come from a tradition that we're going to read that passage in a little bit in 1 Corinthians 11. And he calls us to examine ourselves. Do not partake of the body and the blood of Christ in an unworthy way. And sometimes we can get really up in angst about that. We start to think this is a test of purity. Communion is the test of purity. Only if you're 100% perfect and pure can you partake. You're, you're not thinking about it the right way. What are we looking for? Purity? No, we're looking for faith. Are you believing right now in this moment, this morning in the gospel? Are you trusting in Jesus right now? Because if you're trusting in Jesus, he's going to recall unrepentant sins. He's going to recall broken relationships that need mending. If you're just thinking as hard as you can about, man, I've, I've been a good person this week, I think. I've said my prayers. I've evangelized. I've loved my, I've loved my neighbor as myself. You're going to fall short every time, and you're going to partake with shaking hands. If you're thinking instead about the imputed righteousness, the finished work of Jesus Christ, how sufficient it is, how it covers you the same way the blood covered the houses of the Israelite, then you're on to something. That's what communion is all about. The Passover was not about the quality of the people inside the house. It was about the mercy and the grace of the one passing over them. The Lord struck the Egyptians, but he spared us. I got a friend who, who wrote this up about communion years ago. He said, it's almost as if God said this to the, to the Israelites that night. And I'm, I'll be closing here promise near the end it's as if god said tonight i'm going to set you free from egyptian bondage all your prayers over the years are about to come true and i don't need any help from you to deliver you i don't i don't need you to grab a sword or assemble an army or help me liberate you from pharaoh here's what i want you to do 
Gather your family together, slaughter a lamb, and cook it. <laughs> if the lamb is too big for your family to eat, then I want you to invite your next door neighbors. I also want you to bake some unleavened bread and herbs. And listen, I don't want you to do this halfway. I want you to feast tonight, which means you better eat all of it. No leftovers. <laughs> Everyone eat their fill. Have a good time and watch me go to work for you, but stay inside. <laughs> don't you like that? When I was growing up, this is probably a terrible illustration. When I was growing up, there was, a, there was a movie probably based on a Stephen King idea, The Fog. It was a John Carpenter film, and it was about this sinister, ominous fog that would come into a town, and it would cover and shroud a house, and there would be this loud at the door, and then, you know, the monster would get you if you open the door. I always think of, I always think for some reason, I have, some movies can be powerful, right? I had that image in my mind, don't go outside, and it's, it's like that, but it's not like that, because the one who is passing over looks down, and he sees the blood of that lamb, he sees his covenant pledge to you, his love covers you, his blood atones from you, and you belong to him, there's love there, which is, this is a celebration feast, the early church called this a love feast, love feast, even the pagan Romans didn't understand it, they thought that they were What's the word? Cannibalism. They thought they were committing cannibalism because they were talking about eating the blood and body of their Savior, the one who died and rose from the grave. So that is what Passover is all about. That is why we celebrate this every single month. We remember that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. In fact, that's what this really is all about. Um, it's funny, man. My, my, I got a little toddler. He's really adventurous. And I'm a carpenter by trade, and I have tools in my garage, and I tell my kids to leave them alone, and they never listen. Um, and do you guys know what this is? Anybody ever seen one of those? That's old school. That's called a chalk box. It's a chalk box. I've used that thing probably, probably thousands of times in my life. Still got the original one I got when I became a carpenter. It's got a long yarn-like string in there, and it's filled with bright red chalk. And when you have to cut a piece of plywood or when you're... When you're laying plywood on a roof and you need a straight line, you stretch this chalk line out and you pop it and you've got a straight, perfectly red line. It's got red chalk there. Well, I filled this thing up with red chalk and forgot about it, put it in my nail apron. And one morning, my toddler got up super early and I walked into the, the living room in the garage and there's chalk everywhere. Chalk everywhere. I'm like, oh no, what has this kid done, man? He had got that thing, and he thought it was a toy, and he spread this chalk line out everywhere, and it was interesting. And, and in fact, I'm always praying for illustrations, <laughs> talking about Exodus and the blood of Christ, and what does the Old Testament say about Jesus? I could walk through my house, and everywhere I walked, I could see where my toddler had been. I could see that he had been in the garage. I could see that he had been on my favorite chair where I read the Bible. I could tell where he wrapped the, the yarn around there. He had been in our living room floor. He had even been, that's where he got back into the garage to get more chalk, I guess. Um, he was everywhere. And really, this story in the Old Testament, slaughter a lamb, you know what that's really about, don't you? You know what that's, who that's about. Who's the lamb? <laughs> it's Jesus Christ. You know, John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now listen, I got a question for you. We're about to do communion. In fact, our servers, you can get ready. And musicians will be making their way up here in a minute. And if you have believing children in the back that you want to join you for communion, certainly this is the time to get them. But I have a question for you. Are you remembering, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, are you remembering that this is not about you? This is not about you. This is, 
This is remembering what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Behold the Lamb. That's all I want us to do this morning when we celebrate communion. I want us to behold the Lamb and I want us to remember. That's the last thing the Apostle Paul left us with. He said, for I received from the Lord what I, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So who are we doing this to remember? Jesus Christ. Are we doing it to remember us? No. Are we doing it to remember our sins? No. Are we doing it to remember how awesome we are, how resolved we are, how obedient we are? No. We are doing this to remember Jesus. In fact, you remember the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a Passover meal with his disciples. And this is interesting, man. People have squabbled over that, like, is this the first communion or is this the last Passover? What is it? And I think they're really missing the point. The, the point of that feast is there was a lamb present at that last supper that Jesus had in the upper room with his apostles. And you can read about it in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Um, the lamb was there, but the lamb wasn't on the table. The lamb was at the table. Jesus Christ was the lamb. Now, the next day... He would put a piece of wood on his back and walk outside the city and deliver himself for us. But Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slaughtered for your sins and for mine. He came to free us and he came to forgive us. That's what the gospel message is. And that's what we remember and celebrate every time we have communion. Do you know that forgiveness? Do you know release from captivity? What sin is it that you're holding on to? What, what bondage is it that, that you, you've been held by? Jesus Christ wants you to handle this, to taste this, to touch this and remember today. He can set you free. He wants to set you free. He came to set you free. That's the whole purpose of his coming to earth. So let's celebrate this together. They prepare the, the table. Just want to remind everyone this is for believers. Never want to presume or assume. Uh, everyone would know that. This is if you're trusting in Jesus Christ today to rescue you from your sins, this is for you. If your hope and your trust is on Christ and Him alone to forgive you and to save you and to rescue you, then I invite you to partake of this. So our servers now are gonna hand this out. These are a little pre-made. I think this is, a, this is the last batch we have of these. We did it there in the beginning stages of COVID. These uh, are sanitized, and there's two peel-off wrappers on top. One is for the wafer, and the other one is for the juice underneath that. And we'll wait until everyone has, has been served this, and we'll do it together.
This is Psalm 107. I think Bree listed this in some of her verses earlier. It's a powerful passage. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in the desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And then this, check this out. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bonds of iron. Hallelujah. Isn't that a good reminder of what Jesus Christ did, what it cost him? It cost the Son of God, his precious blood, his perfect body. It was broken for us. So the Apostle Paul tells us to peel this top wrapper off. I know you did. I'm sorry, Cliff. I have absolutely no fingernails. I was so nervous about this sermon, I, I bit them all off. Carpenter hands. It's no, carpenter hands. That's right. So listen, the Lord told us to remember him, and we do it in this way. <laughs> we take, take the bread. Will you do it with me? This is the body of Christ. Let's take it together. It says in the same way they took the cup that night and Jesus said this is the covenant of my blood. Let's drink it together. And then they prayed. Lord Jesus, thank you for your rescue. Thank you for the deliverance that you secured for us. We were unworthy. We were rebellious. We were broken. We found some strange and mysterious comfort in our captivity, Lord, and you came and you exposed the lies. You shined light in the darkness and you sacrificed yourself on our behalf, Lord. You spared us from the wrath of God. You spared us from the bondage and the captivity. You gave us a new identity, a new name. You became our new master. You brought us into a good land flowing with milk and honey. You gave us a more abundant life. You gave us one another the bride, the body of Christ, we're so thankful for that today. We celebrate that good news, Lord. Thank you for this reminder that we can engage in every single month. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, servers. You can join your families. Well, the Bible says that night after they celebrated the Last Supper together, uh-oh, that they sang a hymn together. So, Vitaly, you got a hymn for us, brother? All right, and a reminder, when we're done, we're going to have some announcements, and we'll be dismissed. Uh, 
if you would please take this with you so we can remain a good testimony with the school so it won't look like our garage and bedroom with the red stuff everywhere. You can take these and put them in a basket up there in the back. All right, let's sing. Let's celebrate. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For I once was lost, but now I found, was blind, but now I see. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. Hallelujah. Christ is risen.
Amen. Y'all can grab a quick seat. We have a couple of announcements, and then we will say our charge and be dismissed. Um, man, what an incredible time of worship today. Um, praise Jesus. Uh, I just, I just want to mention, especially after hearing Bree's testimony in this sermon today, if you're looking for that community, um, that group of people who will fight with you, who will be beside you, who will be in that foxhole with you, um, we have community groups that meet every single week. We also have smaller groups we call D groups or discipleship groups, just two, three, or four men and women, men or women, um, gender specific, who will meet together, confess sin, and just fight together. If that's something you're interested in, please send me an email. We'll make sure you get connected with a group of believers who you can fight with and fight for. Uh, my email is mattk, M-A-T-T-K, at gracelifeflorida.com. Dot com. Please send me an email. We will make sure you find that community that you need. Um, also, we do have coming up men's, a men's gathering, a women's gathering, not this week, but next week. So May 10th, yes, May 10th for the women's location is still TBD, but the men's gathering will be May 12th at the Clayton home. Um, these are just, we have these four times a year to get with um, the women get together, the men get together for fellowship, for a time of sharing. Um, community groups will be on break for that week. So again, not this week, but next week, men's and women's gatherings. Also, student ministry, we are back on. We took a break for Easter on last third Sunday, but we are meeting tonight at myself and Alexa's house. We'll have a, a time of eating, a, a time of hearing from God's word in Ephesians 2, and also we'll meet, so today's the first Sunday, and then the third Sunday, May 15th. So mark that on your calendars, students 6th through 12th grade. It is for you. Come join us 6 to 8 p.m. Also, we have next week is Mother's Day. We will have a baby and child dedication. Um, if you have a young one you would like to dedicate, that you'd like to have our church pray over, please send an email to kids at gracelifeflorida.com. We'll make sure we're ready for that as well. And then for Mother's Day, Get here at 9.30. We're having muffins with mom. So kids, uh, moms, bring your kids. We'll have muffins for you in the lobby. We'll just have a fun time enjoying a little treat uh, before the service. Muffins with mom. Be there or be square next week because uh, you won't be around. I, d I didn't get that for the longest time. That's what it means. Um, also, lastly, before we say our charge, um, for anyone who serves in the kids' ministry, whether a teacher or a, an assistant somewhere in the classroom in the back, if you serve ever in that capacity, we have a lunch for you. It's going to be right here in the, in the auditorium in this back corner. We want to show our appreciation for you, and we want to share some new information with you. Please join us right after church in that back corner. All right, please stand to your feet. We'll say our charge. Actually, one more thing. So sorry. Today's first Sunday, so we have the uh, collection, the supply collection for Deltona High School for families in transition. 
So if you brought anything, we have a box in the lobby. You can drop that off in. And as always, if you forgot, feel free to swing um, any donations by the church office. We'll be there Tuesday through Friday this week. Okay, let's say our charge. I am a witness. I've been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.